0: Brew Ninja, a brewery software solution that streamlines your day-to-day operations, including inventory, accounting, sales, and compliance, so that you can focus on making great beer. Listeners of this podcast will receive a unique offer by going to GetBrewNinja.com and using the code Ninja 21
1: famous and actually textbook uh, experiment in plant genetics. And starting in 1896, that simple experiment has continued to the present day.
2: We're on to something here. This is going to be, this is going to make better beer. In some very
3: tangible ways, this is one of the most unique beers in the world.
0: This week on the show, a plant breeding experiment that's been running continuously since 1896 produces some unexpected results.
2: Hi, my name is Darren Riggs. I'm co-founder, co-owner of Riggs Beer Company in Urbana, Illinois. Hi,
3: I'm Matt Riggs. I'm Darren's brother and the other half of the co-owner team here at Riggs Beer Company.
1: Hi, I'm Steve Moose. I'm the Alexander Professor of Maize Breeding and Genetics at the University of Illinois.
0: Darren and Matt, you guys are a couple of brewers raised as farmers. Let's hear about what it was like growing up on the farm.
2: Yeah, so... We grew up on a fifth-generation corn and soybean farm here in the southeast corner of Champaign County, um, but it's only about 300 acres of uh, family farmland, which is pretty small for this area. Mostly corn and soybeans, kind of uh, you know uh, commodities hauled to the elevator is what everybody does, and so that works well at scale. Um, So, even our parents didn't farm for a living. They had other jobs on the side. So, we kids always knew growing up uh, that we weren't going to be able to farm for a living. But, um, you know, if we could find something to do that could incorporate the farm into what we were doing or live close to the farm, then we could, uh, you know, continue to run it kind of as a side gig, as a hobby or a lifestyle. Um, So, we were always looking for uh, something that we could do to incorporate the family farm and uh, we we kind of found it when we went to college and uh, fell in love with beer and uh, realized that beer was made from mostly grain and water. Growing up on a grain farm, that you know, ideas start forming. Man, wonder if we could do that. Matt, you got anything to add to that?
3: Yeah. So I mean, growing up, we grew. Um some specialty corn for Frito Lay. The Frito Lay's uh, Midwest grain elevators, just a few miles from our farm. So we were used to, um, you know, growing a little bit of a specialized product for a little bit of a premium. And I th- that's probably one of the things that got us thinking. You know, what else could we do that's even more specialized that we could even own even more of the value chain and and give ourselves even more of a premium. So
0: what was special about that product? Uh
3: Yeah, so the reporting requirements for Frito Lay corn, um, you know, like what was farmed near you, exactly how you farmed it, you had to report a lot more information. They also contracted a lot of uh, white corn. So most corn grown in America is number two yellow dent corn. Um, but uh, there's a food grade subset, sub variety, uh, a lot of which was white corn that uh, we contract grew for Frito Lay. Uh, but we just. They kind of scaled and scaled and, and wanted to work with bigger and bigger farms. So, we, we actually stopped doing that um, about the same time we started thinking, um, what else could we do?
0: Okay, cool. And then, and then like Darren said, uh, like a lot of other folks, it sounds like you discovered beer in college. Well, I,
3: I remember it maybe <laughs> a year or two before, uh, but you know, <laughs> those are semantics.
0: Yeah. Um, okay. So, tell me what happened after college.
2: Well, uh, we we both were able to afford college by doing ROTC scholarships. So I was in the Navy uh, after graduating, and Matt was in the Marine Corps, which again took us to uh, a lot of different places far from the farm um, that uh, had a lot different beer culture than what we grew up with in the Midwest. Uh, at one point, we both lived in Southern California, for example, kind of during the uh, height of the early two thousands uh, craft beer boom down there, and uh, so we got to see. Um, you know, the the explosion in the number of small breweries. And uh it was kinda in the back of our minds, we're going, yeah, this uh, you know, going back to the Midwest, it's like jumping in a time machine and going back in time 10 years, and we can see, you know, that that this could work back home because nobody's doing it.
0: All right. So so then what happened after that? You guys actually end up uh learning how to brew beer, right?
2: Yeah, that's
3: right. So um about the same time, Darren and I both decided to get out um, of the military and pursue, uh, you know, kind of a, a, a real career in brewing. We both, I think, are kind of methodical people, and uh, we wanted to to get industry experience and, and education um, under our belts before we uh Bit off, you know, our own bre- tackling that that type of a project of of doing our own brewery. So, See, good for um, you. I did
0: the exact opposite. I just jumped straight <laughs> into the fire, and um, it, d- you know,
2: different outcome. But you know, <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, we, th- we had done so. I had done some home brewing, and you know, there were a couple batches only a mother could love. You know, <laughs> like man, nobody's gonna drink this. <laughs>
3: Yeah, so about the same time we we both decided, hey, let's let's go for it. Um my wife is German, so um she convinced me to move back uh to where her family was still at um in kind of south central Germany. Um got a job at a at an old brewery in um the very northwestern corner of Bavaria called Brauhaus Faust. Had a great time there. Um fulfilled my requirements the prereqs to be able to go to German brewmaster school at, at Domans, So I went to the, the German language um, course. And then um, during that time, Darren, uh, yeah, you go ahead and tell your side.
2: Sure. What, well, you know, Matt did it the German way, uh, work first and then go to school. So I did it the American way uh, and went, got out of the Navy and went up to UC Davis and started their uh, master brewers program. So I went through that. Um, and then while there, started interviewing for jobs. And uh, one of the things that, uh, you know, Professors Lewis and Bamforth reminded us uh, when we were going through the program, because most of us were looking to go back to, a you know, either start a craft brewery or work at a craft brewery somewhere, they reminded us, hey, you know, the, the big brewers, the macro guys, those are the true masters of the trade, you know, making a consistent product at different locations with varying ingredients. And, oh, by the way, more people drink their beer than the craft brewers. So, don't, don't look down on them. And so, I uh, decided to follow up that by getting a job just down the road from Davis at the Anheuser-Busch Brewery in Fairfield and got to make uh, you know a lot of beer there. Awesome.
0: And I understand, Dan, that you were actually also homebrewing while working at Anheuser-Busch. Why was that? And was that unusual or were your fellow employees also making beer at home?
2: Uh, so, Fairfield had a, a homebrew club, um, uh, uh, at the brewery, and so uh, that that predated me. Um, but the guy who was running it, Anheuser Busch moves moves people around a lot, and so he was heading off to St. Louis, and I said, "Yeah, I'll, I'll take that up." Oh, meanwhile, I had just bought like a very uh, fancy, uh, you know, three vessel uh, rims homebrew system from uh, from More Beer just down the road uh, there in California, and uh, so I had the. I had the Cadillac at home to, uh, to do the homebrewing on. And
0: I understand that unlike most homebrewers, you were playing with some ingredients that were familiar from your day job. <laughs> Talk about that.
2: Yeah, exactly. Um, so, you know, working, working at Anheuser-Busch and, you know, using corn grits and rice in the beer and, and realizing, you know, hey, this is, this is totally possible. Um, started exper- experimenting with some adjunct ingredients uh, on the home brewing setup and, you know, getting the extra pot and boiling that on the stove while the, the regular main mash is going out in the garage and then dumping that in. And, you know, sure enough, hey, this, this turns into beer and it's, it's, not, it's not too bad. All right. So then
0: the wheels get turning and uh, it's, uh, it's back to the farm. So, you know, so what happened then? You guys just quit your day jobs and start your own brewery? Pretty much exactly
3: that, yeah. Um, we we wrote a business plan before uh, quitting day jobs. I, th- I would encourage people to do that, um, <laughs> but Same. yeah, and, and and got the bank to buy off on it. You know, they we we had gotten a guarantee of a of a loan to the size that you know we needed in order to launch the plan, and then yeah, pretty much I moved back uh, from Germany. Darren moved back from California. Um, obviously, my experience, brewing in Germany. Um, i'd never used corn in any way shape or form in in brewing (laughs) um and you know darren at ab they use grits uh and i we just kind of like had this discussion um about how do we want to process the corn how do we want to use the corn i don't think there was ever really a discussion or a debate that we should use corn that was already a given because you know we're a corn farm. We're, we're in central Illinois. This is corn
2: country. Um, so I think it made a lot of sense. Um, and in fact, we, you know, the, our plan had been from the beginning that we were going to have this four vessel brew house uh, so that we could do American double mash and use raw corn uh, in the beer, just like at the big breweries. Oh, by the way, it's also the same type of system that would be decoction capable that you'd use in a German brew house. So that went together really well.
3: Yeah, so we literally, you know, while we were building out the brewery here, we just started doing some pilot batches um, on Darren's uh, little homebrew setup, and those are the first beers that I'd ever brewed with corn in them, um, and we were just using number two yellow dent field corn, which is, you know, what you what you see on, uh, as you drive through the Midwest, all those fields, that's what that, that is, and, um, you know, we were pretty happy with the results right out of the box, uh, right out of the gates, using number two yellow dent corn, um, you know, we, a year or two in, we, we started to want to play around and experiment. And that's kind of the topic of, of the podcast today. But I think we were both surprised with how well it worked just doing, you know, the gelatinization of, of the adjunct mash, doing a protein rest on the main mash, bringing them together.
0: It, it works really elegantly. But there was still one problem. You didn't have the ability to make corn grits. Talk about that.
2: Yeah, so at AB, you know, we would get corn grits by the train load, right? Uh, Coming from a a mill. Uh, And and in fact, Bungie Mill in Danville, Illinois is not 20 minutes from our farm uh, where they make a lot of those corn grits for Anheuser-Busch. But we didn't have access to a corn germer, so we were going to have to use our whole kernel corn and just grind it the morning of the brew day. So it's going right in the, uh, you know, right in the kettle, which we uses our adjunct mash cooker, um, you know, right away. And and we thought that that could help us avoid some of the uh, shelf life stability problems from having full, you know, regular oil, amount of oil in the corn uh, by not having it de-germed. Um but what we kind of found was that that kind of put an upper limit, especially in the American lager, in the amount of corn uh, that we could we could use in the recipe because we would pick up some of that corny tortilla e type of flavor uh, if we started going you know m- much more than like twenty percent in the in the total grain bill
0: let 's hear more about those shelf life issues.
3: yeah, so the shelf life wasn't really an issue for us early on um because it's a small brewery that was draft only um we were turning beers pretty quickly um but it became apparent you know the longer you're in business the the further distribution uh reaches out that at the at the further reaches of our, our distribution um map and and maybe you know a keg that uh, we, we've kept around just to see, you know, like, hey, what is the actual life of, of this beer? We started to notice that the, you know, whole kernel corn, standard number two yellow dent corn um, beers were starting to degrade quicker than our all malt beers were.
0: Okay. Do you, um, it's okay if you don't, but do you want to talk about how lipid staling works?
2: So <laughs> I, I can jump in there. Uh, yeah. So, you know, that, that oil content that's in the kernel ends up in the finished beer. It causes a couple issues. One, it can cause a, a foam degradation uh, because, you know, lipids uh, will, will keep those strong, you know, foam bubbles from forming. Um, we didn't see a lot of that because, as I said, we, we kept the corn down in the 20 to 25 percent range in the total grain bill. But then also those oils and lipids uh, that, that are in the beer uh, interact with, uh, you know, oxygen, any, any oxygen that's, that remains in the beer, even though we were draft only at the time, you know, you never get rid of all of it. And it's that, uh, you know, trans two non and all staling, uh, reaction that just never stops. You know, it doesn't use up the oxygen as you make that wet cardboard flavor. Uh, the oxygen just pops out again and, and keeps causing more havoc. So it's, it's only a matter of time and having the higher oil concentration um, kind of limited the shelf life we could get with the beer.
0: Matt, what happened when you Googled low oil corn? I
3: always tell people to go ahead and Google it if they don't believe me. Um, (laughs) And I think that we've now replaced uh, the number one Google search result result um, with an article that a Prairie farmer wrote about us, but, uh, I think it's still the number two search result. Um, yeah, it, it kind of knocked my socks off when I was searching for, you know, solutions to lower our, our corn oil content without, without going the de germer route, uh, The number one search result was uh, Professor Stephen Moose's lab here at the University of Illinois. in the same town that we're at, actually, uh, funny enough, and he may tell this story in a, in a funny way, but an old professor of mine, uh, Professor Moose, that that I'd forgotten that I'd taken one of his classes. It was senior year, so I was I was doing other stuff, um, <laughs> but yeah, it, it kind of knocked my socks off that the number one search result was um, you know a corn breeding lab right here at the U of I in our town, and so I immediately was like, oh my god. I have to get a hold of some of this low oil corn and, and put it in a batch of American lager and see what it does.
0: Okay. So, um, Stephen, this is your, um, your big segue here. So I guess, um, tell us about this corn and sort of the the history behind it. Tell us about these, uh, these Riggs characters and what they were like as students. Tell us whatever you want to tell us.
1: <laughs> okay. Um, well, the corn, um, it's actually, um, a famous and actually textbook uh, experiment in plant genetics. And it the, the, the start of it was from, um, this was 1890s. And a professor here in what was then called agronomy, he was actually the department uh, chair. He was actually a chemist. And he then had also read Charles Darwin's books. And he wondered if you could use I think the, the quote that's attributed to him is, I want to do to corn what Darwin did to his pigeons. <laughs> I'm not sure that would be politically correct um, today. But um, what he meant was to select for differences in chemical composition that then you know, maybe could improve animal feed was definitely one of the goals. And so for then uh, the traits they decided to select for was the percent or concentration of oil and the concentration of protein. So then what they um, did is they also had a little bit of foresight to know as um, where most of the corn is is yellow. Um, It happens in this area in Illinois and even back in 1890s that white corn was grown and prominent here. And so they actually located some white corn and it turns out the farm from which they got the corn was about 10 miles south of campus and probably less than 10 miles from the Riggs farm.
2: Yeah, in fact... the remainder of the, the Burr family farm is about three miles from where our, our farm was and is.
1: Yeah. So so, that, that is the, so there, there's a connection there that you know, is, was yet to be known, but has come to fruition. And so this corn, uh, they actually brought it back in, in horse and wagon back to campus and then measured. They actually used two bushels and it ended up having 163 ears of corn in it but then they measured each for their percent oil and their percent protein then divided the corn that those 163 ears into four groups the top 10% for protein the bottom 10% for protein and then the same for oil a high oil and a low oil those four kinds were then grown on our campus in different places far enough away they wouldn't pollinate with each other but would pollinate with themselves and then Years were harvested, they were measured, and the top 10% or bottom 10%, depending on the direction, was chosen for the next generation. And starting in 1896, that simple experiment has continued to the present day.
0: That's crazy. And I understand this is like the longest running continuous genetic experiment or something like that?
1: In plants, for certain. Um, And probably as a controlled experiment, yes. Wow. Um, And so... Among these four, that these four have continued, and there have been all kinds of studies done of them for various kinds of reasons. Because one, one thing in particular that's noteworthy and why they're in the textbooks is they show how effective uh, artificial selection can be um, and how long it can progress. In the corn case, it's, it's sort of phenomenal. It's an outlier in the sense that people have done similar studies with fruit flies and different beetles and different kinds of organisms. But usually after 50 generations or so, the response levels off. But in corn, it's continued um, 80, sometimes 100. We even have one that's in, at cycle 120. And we think that the high protein is finally slowing down. Wow. That basically you can't get any higher. Um, but the low oil then had bottomed out in the, in the 1980s. And so the professors who were here before, there have only been seven over the course of the experiment. I'm number seven who have done the experiment the guy before me john dudley he ran it for 35 years and he did a number of different innovations to it but among the four the only one that no one has ever cared much about is the low oil until matt riggs came along and this um, email popped into my inbox and it was actually from my former student because the the link that matt found was a I think her thesis or a paper that she had written that had kind of summarized the experiment up until the year 2010 or so. And so he found her contact and, and contacted her. And then she sends me this email. She graduated since then. And she's like, well, this is pretty interesting. You, you, you know, these guys are actually in our backyard, et cetera, et cetera. And so, so I decided, well, I'm just going to drive over there. I, the rigs uh, brewery, Actually, was a it had a few different things that it had been over the years before they bought it, but one of them was this bar and softball complex fields, and I had played in softball leagues over there, and so I knew where the brewery was, and I knew it was new. So then I drove over there and had this conversation with with Matt, and he gave me a tour of his brewery, told me what he was trying to do, and you know, like the Riggs brothers you know we'll say you know pre college to college days yeah beer was one of my best friends um and still is so so the fact that you know hey someone's actually interested in this corn for making beer you know I'm on board um so of course then it came to well, okay where can we get some of the corn and um well, hold on a second though did yeah. you had,
0: at what point did you did you recognize uh that that Matt had been one of your students did you re- did you recognize that right away or, or did it take you a little while to to make that connection
1: no, I did not remember it right away. It actually came to me, oh, probably after about a year of us um, you know conversation and I was not I think,
3: an exceptional student
1: <laughs> I, I remember what prompted it is there was an article that our college did because he 's an alum of our of our college um about the brewery and and the success and at that point, even this the article didn't even really mention much about the corn at that stage because it hadn't progressed but um they mentioned ROTC and, and rigs. And I kind of remembered in my class, there was only one ROTC student around that time. And I actually went back and looked in my roster of, of students and and said, oh, there he is. You know, and um, and then I have a, a file cabinet where I, um, I all the students. It's a it's a spring course. So many students, you know, when they gra- they're either graduating or they're going home for the summer, They never come to get their final exam. So I have this file cabinet of final exams, and there's a few famous people that have actually taken my class, including Matt Riggs. So I found his exam, and I took it over to him one day, and we had a good laugh. And he he gave me a couple extra beers for passing him, basically. (laughs) That's
3: funny. (laughs) There was a lot of red ink on that paper. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, In any event, you know, he's
2: not denying it. (laughs)
1: <laughs> um, he must have learned something from me because he, you know, obviously he's become successful and he's even doing, you know, I, if the class was biotechnology and agriculture and you you know, brewing is, I always say that the very first day of class, it starts tomorrow. I will say, you know, our oldest form of biotechnology is brewing. And some theorize that in, for many of our crops, it was brewing that led to domestication. So, so in any event, that was the connection there.
2: Coming up. But then when this stuff started growing, it did not look like corn. People would slow down as they, you know, drove past our farm looking out the window, like, what's going on here?
0: I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. There's really only one thing that keeps this podcast going, and that's when listeners like you take the time to thank our sponsors. The next time you talk to a rep from one of these companies, be sure to thank them for their generous support. Brought to you by CanCraft and BSG. Whether you need a full service packaging experience from design to delivery, or you just need some aluminum cans, CanCraft can do. CanCraft's design and aluminum specialists are here to support your business every step of the way. Visit bsgcraftbrewing.com backslash CanCraft to learn how CanCraft can help realize your brand potential. Get to
3: know Proximity Malt. We malt superior, European-style, low-protein varieties grown close to home in Delaware and Colorado. Domestically grown, precisely malted to style. With our team of seasoned experts and two
1: brand-new malt houses, try what's really new in malt. Check us out at www.proximitymalt.com.
0: Positively impact your process, product, and profitability with actionable insights from BrewIQ, the industry-leading real-time fermentation monitoring solution. Visit www.precisionfermentation.com backslash MBAA to start saving time and money today. Berkeley Yeast, creators of the bioengineered yeast Tropics which makes beer with insanely potent passion fruit and guava notes. I actually brewed with Tropics after we talked about it on episode 188, and the next day the brewery smelled like a guava orchard. Now, Berkeley Yeast just released Thiol Boost, which is a liquid thiol precursor that will take it to another level. Mention this podcast to get 15% off your next order. I really hope you listen to what I'm about to say because I'm spending my own money to say it. Most listeners think this podcast is my full-time job, but I actually spend most of my waking hours improving the Lupulin Exchange, which I launched in 2014. I hope that like this show, the Exchange has been helpful to you. Would you do me a favor? Buy your next box of hops on the Lupulin Exchange and let me know how I can make the experience even better. I answer every support ticket personally, and I'd love to hear from you. And here's what's coming up on the Master Brewers calendar. District St. Paul, Minneapolis meets at Blackstack Brewing February 23rd. The Master Brewers Brewery Packaging Technology Course starts February 24th. District Great Plains meets February 24th and 25th in Kansas City. The multi-district event known as the Eastern Technical Conference is back. March 24th and 25th at the Atlantic Sands Hotel and Conference Center in Rehoboth Beach, Delaware. District Rocky Mountain is accepting applications for the newly formed Hoppy Grandma Scholarship until March 31st. The Hoppy Grandma Scholarship honors Carmen Duran by assisting brewers with the tuition of brewing courses to help advance their careers. Details can be found in the scholarship section of the District Rocky Mountain page on the Master Brewers website. District St. Louis is holding a Yeast Symposium April 20th. District Northwest meets in beautiful Hood River April 21st and 22nd. The Master Brewers Brewery Maintenance Systems course begins June 9th. The world-famous Master Brewers Brewing and Malting Science course begins September 29th. The 2023 Master Brewers Conference will be October 6th through the 8th in Seattle, Washington. Check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. Now back to the show. So these guys, so obviously they, they, you know, they're interested in this special low oil corn and they went to give it a shot. Uh, so they, you know, get in touch with you, but there's just one problem.
1: Yeah. You need some seeds.
0: Yeah. And how much, <laughs> how, how, how many seeds did you have?
1: Yeah. So, so I had to look because as I had said, the low oil had, they hadn't done much with it um, since the eighties. And so I had not done anything with it. I um, started on this experiment. Um, in terms of running it in the field um, in 2007 um, when Dr. Dudley retired. So I went to the cold room and searched through what we had, and I found, I would say, about a maybe a five-pound bag of seeds. Okay. And this was all that was left of the end of the, the, the lowest oil of them all. Um, and so I decided, okay, I will grow that. And we'll start with that. And so the the first year we couldn't do anything because I had to make more seed. So we planted, I think, a thousand plants of that. And I pollinated all of them and we got the ears from those. And that, I remember um, Matt had said he needed, I think, 75 kilograms for a batch. And that was kind of, I had estimated that, well, if I put a thousand plants, I should be able to get that. And, And we succeeded. We got right about on the number. So he could do one I guess half a batch of brewing.
0: so and did you so, do that in like a test plot or in a greenhouse? like how did no, you grow in a, in a
1: test plot? So we on our campus, we every year were growing the experiment and um, other things, <clears throat> and so I devoted some space to growing these plants. It didn't take a lot in the very beginning, so i I decided, well, I'll make enough, let's see what it looks like and I think I'd made enough that you know, if we wanted to do it again, there was enough seed you know, to go and, and, and do more. So, so that's what we did. And then the other thing we realized that first year was the yield of this variety wasn't very good. Um, this is like we call it heirloom corn you know, from the 1890s, and it had never really been selected for improved yield. And so this thing, you know, maybe 30 bushels an acre. And, you know, what Matt was describing, the, how much they might need, I was like, wow, we're going to need a lot. So, you know, the thing that in, in corn really jumps the yield up is hybridization and crossing with another type, and preferably a type that's different. But then in this case, we wanted to preserve the low oil uh, feature, which no other corn is. So I had to decide what to cross it with, and I decided, well, I'm going to keep it in the family. Because another thing that we didn't, um, I didn't mention here, but it was part of the discussion early on, I remember Matt saying, you know, this is all great. I, you know, this low oil seems interesting, but you know, it would be awesome if it was white seed. And I said, buddy, you're in luck because it is. <laughs> and, uh, and, it, and that, again, goes back to the very beginning, why they chose white. I think was it, was it was popular in the area, but it also meant if any other yellow corn crossed with it, they would know it. So it was intentionally chosen, I think, to to keep the genetics uh, pure. Um, so then what I decided to cross it with to make the hybrid was the Illinois low protein. So it was from the same experiment, but it had been selected for low protein. And we knew enough about we had done a little like a 23andMe or Ancestry.com kind of um, DNA fingerprinting on these to know that they were very different from each other. Um, and also quite different from other corn that's grown currently in the Midwest. So it seemed like low protein was a good choice. It was because it's low in protein. It also is quite high in starch, which obviously for brewing is what you want. So we made that cross and the yield jumped up, I, you know, probably to around 80, 60 to 80 bushels. And um, it was also quite uh, a white seed. It turns out that the white uh, seed in the low oil is actually due to a different set of genes than the white seed in the low protein. And so when you cross them together, you get a real chalky white kernel, a a kind of a unique, almost a bright white
0: color.
2: And I I should say, you know, that first year we had enough to do like half a batch of, of one single batch of beer. And we could immediately tell the difference when when you hold this kernel in your hand. For one, it looks different than modern corn, and when you eat it, uh, it is just chalky and powdery and starchy. And so immediately, we're like, "Oh man, this is we're on to something here. This is going to be this is going to make better beer."
3: Well, and, and when we brew with it, we we could tell immediately. You know, on on the corn beers, there was always this kind of orange oil slick or uh, there's a bit of a like a orange foam on the decoction mash or i'm sorry the adjunct mash um, when we were gelatinizing the cornstarch and and it filled the brewery with like just really strong very pleasant tortilla aroma it is almost like you were in a mexican restaurant um when we were boiling that corn and when we moved to the white um you know the that kind of orange, frothy, oil slick, weird thing that was on top of the uh, the, the boiling uh, corn that went away, and the aroma—it's um, it's still very, very different from when we do an all malt beer. Even when we're you know pulling the decoction and boiling a decoction um, of an all malt beer, there there's still like a corn component, but it's not—it's it, not like tortilla. It's like a, it's a more pure, neutral corn. I, I, I don't know how else to describe it, but you know the, the color, the aroma, um, in it, on brew day was also
0: very different, um, which got us pretty excited about it. So how long ago did all this happen? When? How long have you guys been actually, you know, consistently
2: brewing with that type of corn? So we we grew the first batch of the first cross, which there are two different hybrids that Professor Moose did. The first one was a low oil mother and a low protein father in 2019, and that's the one that we we, was about 65 bushels of the acre, and so we we grew enough for about one year's worth of use. Actually, I think at the first half of the first year, we we kept using the yellow corn when we were making our IPL just because. That's a you know hoppy beer and it covers up the corniness uh, so we could get away with keeping doing yellow corn. And so we kind of just had enough to do the American lager in that first year. And meanwhile, Professor Moose is working on changing around uh, the way he did the cross and using the low protein as the mother and the low oil as the father. And I, I don't know if you want to talk about that, but uh, it, it, it helped the agronomics, you know, the yield almost doubled uh, by, by doing that. So, the first time that we grew the low protein uh, crossed with the low oil as the father was in, in, in 2020. And so, that's what we've been using since then. You know, we've been talking about high and
0: low oil content, but we really haven't put that into perspective. How do these oil contents compare to other brewing grains?
1: If you, you look at barley uh, and wheat malt, you're,
3: you're down in the one... To two, two and a half percent um, rice, you're sitting down there somewhere around one percent oil, and corn grits. Um, the the numbers vary on on where I've found the information, but I think you're sitting around two percent. Um, normal corn. Correct me if I'm wrong, Professor Moose, but you're sitting around five or even higher percent um, oil. Is that right?
1: I think in the 4 to 5 range would be the most the commercial corn
3: which is why yeah. you know that's an outlier on all those numbers all those other brewing grains that we use they're below 3% and um, that's why when we were integrating this you know 4 or 5 maybe 6% oil corn it was very apparent and now with this low oil corn you know we we've kind of cut that corn oil content in half and has brought it very much in line with all the other brewing grains that that we normally use in the brewery. Cool.
2: And another, another thing to mention there is, you know, we are growing a lot of our own barley uh, and we as well. And, uh, the, the corn really lends itself to, you know, adjunct, uh, brewing with six row barley. So, um, because we've we've gone through several seasons, and uh, for whatever reason um, we've we've killed all the two row barleys that we've tried to grow uh, <laughs> with with the winters that we have here um, and we've found a couple of six row varieties uh, thoroughbred is the only amba approved six row winter variety so we've been growing that for several years uh, we haven't been able to kill that yet uh, with cold weather and then we use Lacey in the spring if uh, if we have uh, a need for more. Um, we grew, first grew it because of winter kill on some Violetta that we had tried to grow. Um, and so that combination of six row barley uh, really lends itself well to you know adjunct brewing with with a whole kernel of corn. Or, or Darren, you know, I would caveat on that. Or any of our contracted
3: two row that we're buying right now, you know, I've seen the shipments here in the last six months protein content skyrocket and i'm thinking to myself those are that's protein content that we usually see in our lacy six row that really is helped out by a big old you know cut of of corn which which we all know is really low protein so it drags that number back down into you know maybe an average of ten and a half percent kind of what what we're shooting for um i've thought to myself as we because of last year's um you know north american barley crop struggles because we were kind of pre-positioned to weather that storm pretty well, because we brew a lot of beers with a lot of corn, and it's just kind of um, been interesting to see that our our use of six row over the last several years has kind of got us ready and prepared for this last year's crop of two row from North America that everybody's using uh, with regard to the high protein content
0: this corn, as awesome as it is, has these ancient genetics. Um, So, like we mentioned earlier, it hasn't benefited from the traits that have resulted from more than 100 years of of breeding efforts. What are the biggest challenges you face when working with this variety? And talk about how you overcome those challenges.
2: You know, from the farming side, uh, for for one, you know, Professor Moose warned us, he says, hey, you've got to plant this at a lower population. You can't plant it at the same population as modern corn, which is around the you know thirty-four to thirty-five thousand uh, plants per acre, uh, so plant it more like sweet corn or popcorn, twenty-five thousand plants per acre. We said, okay, got that. Why, why is that? Uh, so part of why modern corn can make such high yields is because it's learned to live closer to other corn plants, so you can just squeeze in more plants per acre and they can still thrive. Correct me if I'm wrong there, Professor Moose, but that, yep, that's the former understanding of it. Um, right so, so he said, uh, don't plant these as close together. Put your normal amount of fertilizer on like you would with regular corn. We were already growing non-GMO corn on our farm, um, so we didn't have to change you know, herbicide routine or anything like that. Uh, but then when this stuff started growing... It did not look like corn. Like people, <laughs> people would slow down as they, you know, drove past our farm, looking out the window, like what What's going on here? So <laughs> it, it grows extra tall. Uh, it's got this huge bushy tassel uh, that looks like you, you stuck a mop up in the air. Um, the the ears uh, grow extra high on the plant, and that makes it really susceptible to wind as well. So that first year. Uh, we had a big windstorm, and man, that, that stuff went down, uh, pretty bad, which makes it, you know, hard to one, it won't dry, continue drying down. And then it's also difficult to harvest. So it made some challenges, uh, you know, growing it and, and then, you know, the, uh, the bushels per acre was, was low. So about 110 bushels, the acre, which were normally we get 200 or more in a good growing season. And then <clears throat> The stuff wouldn't dry down. So uh, we kept harvesting like later and later in the year trying to get this corn to dry down. But no matter w- when we harvested it, even in November, it was still about 22% moisture, which is way too high, uh you know, to keep for, for storage. Um So we always had to put it in a bin, blow a lot of air on it, get it down into the, you know, 14% uh storage moisture. Um, and in fact, we even installed a, uh, a new bin, a new silo up here at the brewery um, so that we could put that corn in a small bin, put a fan on it and, and dry it down, you know, nice and quickly so that it would, you know, keep for the next year uh, to be able to use it in the beer. Okay, talk about why that is. Why, why wouldn't it dry down?
1: Yeah, so um, this, uh, you know, the the We'll call it the grain moisture has long been you know it's one of these like trade off traits with yield. As you try to increase yield, one way to do it is let the plants grow longer in the field. They accumulate nutrients and photosynthesize longer, um, but then you lead you know you can you know be you know go too late. And so corn breeding has has tried to you know basically make corn not necessarily flower earlier but ripen earlier where the the time between the pollination and the the seed is developed and then that seed dries is accelerated in the field, that seed drying. And that's been something that's been selected for. And it turns out that, so this, um, one of the things that you can see if you look at corn varieties is some stay green much later in the season. Um, They actually call that stay green. It's a trait that in not only corn, but other crops is, some, But there are kind of there are two kinds of, of stay green. There's a good kind and a bad kind. The bad kind is when the, the plant just doesn't move its nutrients out of the leaves into the ear. So it stays greener, but then you're not going to get much yield. Then there's a good stay green where the plant continues to photosynthesize longer, but start, is still moving the uh, nutrients and um, sugars to the grain. And it turns out that the low protein line has the good stay green. And so that, that's an advantage in the, in the sense of it probably helps its yield, but then there's this disadvantage in that it, it takes longer to dry down. And so the way we're, we're trying to do, deal with that is <clears throat> crossing the low protein by a more modern corn that is, m- most of the modern corn is fairly low in starch anyhow. But it will have, you know, have been selected for, you know, better, uh, less lodging, better stand, shorter ear height. All these, these things that Darren mentioned were, were issues. And then that stay green trait, um, we would also be able to get rid of that. Because we feel like we should be able to compensate for the yield now with the, all the new genetics that would be in the other parent. So we started down that path. And in one of the ways we did is cross low protein by some other, a more modern corn. But one other thing I did is I also went to the germplasm system. The USDA has a germplasm bank, if you will, for corn. And in there are varieties, uh, parents of hybrids that uh, seed companies have sold recently that are now off patent, but they are white seed. And some of them are lower in oil than others. And so I found out of the system the lowest in oil and the white seed versions. And so I've grown those also and crossed them by the, the low oil. And so the low oil parent has stayed the same in all of this um, because it's unique. We don't have another example of any, anything like it, except for, I'll go back to uh, Dr. Dudley. One of the things he had noticed is that the low oil corn was the latest to ripen of all of them, the latest to flower, the latest to mature. And so he wondered if that had something to do with the oil trait. So we also have a high oil corn, and it's very early flowering. And so he wondered, well, maybe that has something to do with it. So what he did is he took the low oil, and he started selecting for it to to, um, flower and mature earlier. And he found that you could do that and not change the oil, that the oil stayed low. And that seed sat in our cold room here at the university for probably twenty years, and it was kept, but no one, you know, ever paid much attention to it. And so I pulled that out of the cold room, and I've been growing that now, and it is, we'll call it the original version. So it has a lot of, you know, good and uh, some some good ones, but mostly bad uh, corn in there in terms of plants. But over the last three years, I've been selecting for uh, out of those. Earlier populations, plants that stand up, that um, have the low oil trait, that don't have as much disease as some of the other ones. So I think I have a, a small set now that I call those version 3.0 Where the ver- the first version was this original heirloom varieties basically crossed to each other. The second version was we improved the low protein parent, and now we're trying to improve in version three um, the low oil parent and where we would bring those two together the improved of both sides and that will work on that we are in progress and you know potentially next year we would have but certainly within a couple of years i think we'll know if this worked or not
0: do you guys see applications for this corn beyond the riggs family farm and brewery or is this uh is this kind of a small neat little thing that's going to be contained to to your region. I mean, do you ever see Darren's former employer, you know, using a product like this or
2: or some something like that? <laughs> if if anybody from Anheuser Busch is uh, listening to this podcast, uh, you know, might look at my email. I guess <laughs> <laughs> be glad to grow some for you. Um, Matt, you want to talk about what what you're doing?
3: Uh, well, I mean, first of all, the first thing that came to my mind, um, John, on that question is we're. <laughs> we're kind of limited to the number of breweries that that this corn can even be used in. You know, it does require um, special equipment, gelatinization. That's right. You know, this isn't a pre-malted corn. um, So you're going to have to fully gelatinize, do separate um, uh, mash for it. You're going to have to have a separate corn mill. You can't run this corn through a, through a malt mill. Um, And I'm not sure how many breweries even care about making an old school heirloom uh you know whatever term you want to call it american logger it's you know i think in recent years the style loggers in in generally uh have gotten a little bit more attention but um there's still not you know the 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 style that i see most brewers uh passionate about and and want to innovate in so i think that there's there's definitely you know a, a limited number of uh, breweries out there that would both be interested in and have the mechanical uh, and technical equipment required uh, to integrate this and um, I'm actually driving out tomorrow uh, to to Jack's Abbey out in uh, Framingham Massachusetts and bring in 125 pounds of this corn to do a collaboration brew with them because they they thought it was really cool they're they're writing a book on on um German lager brewing influence in, in the U.S. And we told them the story. They came out to visit us a while back. And, uh, you know, so there are some brewers that I think get excited uh, about this and, and and possibly want to incorporate that into their their portfolio. But I think for most brewers, it's, it's probably not the most intriguing uh, new raw material uh, that's being developed. I, on the hop
0: side, I, I imagine there's a lot more interest and excitement. I get the sense that this project has been important to each of you and maybe not necessarily for all the same reasons. Is there anything you want to say in that regard before we wrap up?
1: I'd just like to say that I think this is a, you know, the the whole experiment that was started here was to see if you could add value to corn through its composition using genetics. And I think this is just a great example of um, how this corn, it adds value into this operation that it's not on the farm right it's a, it's it's not just yield it's it's these unique features that have been bred um, and also this partnership between you know a business a local business alums and you know the university and um, it just shows an example of how how universities who invest in sort of longer term research that you know maybe companies on a shorter time scale wouldn't wouldn't consider important uh, enough um, but here you know over time it really can you know make a difference so i just think it's a good example of how this whole thing started
2: absolutely it's been, it's been pretty interesting being the both the brewer and the farmer you know you get to see all the way through you know what the agronomic uh decisions that you make uh how those affect all the way to the glass it's it's been uh it, we're we're still learning i guess <laughs>
3: <laughs> cool. and, and I guess my my last thought that I would throw out there is um, sometimes when we give tours or, or I'm just somebody's enjoying an American lager, um, I tell them I'm like you know this beer that you're drinking right now it tastes to you very much like a lot of other beers that you've had before, but in some very tangible ways this is one of the most unique beers in the world. You yeah, know, locally grown six row barley. This ultra low oil white corn you know it's the lowest oil content corn on the planet and that 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 grain bin out in the parking lot has got You know the entire world supply of ultra low (laughs) oil corn, and you know
1: don't tell too many people that. I know I've heard you say that.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Well, we've got some on on the farm too. You know, not all our eggs in one basket. Breaking in
1: there and taking it. (laughs) But the the
3: point I'm trying to make is like I don't know if that would resonate a lot with people on the west coast or the east coast. But I can tell you here in the Midwest and in corn country, a lot of people think that's really cool. So it's it's fun. To, to say hey you know this beer that tastes like so many other beers you've had before or similar right that you know very similar to other stuff you've had before it's tangibly unique and different and I think a lot of people uh, dig that
0: that was Darren Riggs Matt Riggs and Stephen Moose here on the Master Brewers podcast
2: full of courage